You take your Bibles and turn them with me to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. Uh, if you're using these uh, black Bibles and we've got them scattered throughout the sanctuary underneath the seats uh, around you, uh, you're going to find that on page 168. 168, Joshua chapter 3. The, the big numbers are the, the chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers. So, 40 years prior uh, to what we're about to read, Israel, after being slaves in Egypt for many years, suddenly found Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, forcibly ejecting them from the land, having had his nation just rocked by the power of God through signs and wonders, and Pharaoh had had enough. But shortly after letting his slaves go, he changed his mind. He gathered up his horses and his chariots and his warriors and chased down the Hebrews. And the Israelites found themselves trapped with the approaching armies of the king on one side and the Red Sea on the other, and there was panic among Israel uh, as they were convinced that uh, they would be butchered by the forces of Pharaoh. But just when it seemed like all was lost and the story was over, God miraculously parted the waters and made a dry path for Israel to go through while bringing the waters back down on the Egyptian cavalry, uh, obliterating them. And because they did not know which way to go after that, God threw an incredible shining cloud and a brilliant pillar of fire showed them the way and led Israel on a journey towards Canaan, the land that God had promised His people where they would experience blessing and, and peace and safety and, and enjoy the, the fullness of God's presence. But on the verge of entering into the promised land, Israel gave in to fear as they perceived an insurmountable problem, namely the Canaanites who were bigger and stronger and mightier warriors than them, and they were absolutely certain that that barrier was too big for them to face. And they, they despaired of hope and chose to trust their own perception of reality instead of the word and promises of God. And due to their unbelief, God told that first generation of Israelites, that all of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, who trusted God, all the rest were to wander in the wilderness uh, for 40 years until they were dead. They would be shut out from the blessings of God. And so, as we come now to Joshua 3, it's 40 years later, we're full circle. Joshua stands as the leader of this new generation, and the time has come for them at last to enter into the land and the blessings of God. And you can imagine now the anticipation and excitement of the people after years of wandering, this is it. Uh, we're finally here. In, in chapter 1, we saw the commissioning of Joshua by God to lead his people, and we saw all the people rallying behind him and echoing God's exhortation to be, unlike their forefathers, to be strong and courageous. In chapter 2, we see two strong and courageous spies infiltrate the Canaanite city of Jericho, and, and they had an incredible adventure inside the city walls. We talked about that last week. Not only had God protected and preserved them, but they also encountered a woman named Rahab who shifted her allegiance from Canaan 
to her, and, and from her old false gods, shifted that allegiance to Israel and the one true God, and she helped the spies in their mission. And we left off last week at the end of chapter two, where the spies reported back to Joshua, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And so, by this point, Uh, We, the readers, are ready now to rush into the land with them and experience the victory, but not so fast. We're still three chapters away from the first battle. There are still more preparations to be made, more lessons to be learned, and one more mighty obstacle to deal with, more formidable than the Canaanites themselves. It's the rushing, raging, powerful Jordan River. So let's join Israel on its banks and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Please stand with me now out of honor and uh, for the reading of the precious and perfect Word of God. We're in Joshua chapter 3. Thus says your God. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan he and all the people of, the, of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. If there shall be a distance in you between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will Without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall... Rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. 
Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you uh, this morning as a, as a weak, trembling preacher of your word, worn out and exhausted, my, my preparation not everything that I would have hoped it to be. And if I've learned anything, though, from preparing this message, message I've learned that in times of weakness, your strength and your power are made most manifest and obvious. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would work mightily through your word this morning as it goes forth. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who also come before you weak and needy and poor. And Father, I pray that you would illuminate your word this morning so that they might understand what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning. And I pray that by the time we are done, we will walk away from this place blessed and refreshed because of your word, a word which you, you tell us, uh, we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So give us life through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that the things that happened to our believing forefathers in the Old Testament served as examples for us and were written down for our instruction. Uh, they're for us on whom the end of the ages has come. And so for us, Joshua 3 isn't just a little history lesson or a nice little story. Uh, we are to instead discern in it principles and spiritual lessons for us today. Uh, as it's been written down specifically for our instruction, and so may God's Spirit instruct us this morning through this story. And to help us think through our text, I'm going to divide it up into three sections. First, we see an insurmountable problem, a raging river. An insurmountable problem, a raging river. Now, let's get our bearings here. I, I know some of, some of you appreciated the maps that I put up last week. I've got another one here for you. Um, we'll probably use this map several times in our series as it marks some locations that will be relevant to situations later in the book. But if you recall, um, we last week left the Israelites camped at Shittim, uh, which is right there. And their first stop in their conquest is going to be Jericho, which is uh, kind of a gateway city into the rest of the land of Canaan, a fortified city, a walled city, but in between here and here, we have that. That is the Jordan River. And in verse 1, we are told that Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. So, in the ancient world, uh, the Jordan River was an intimidating and daunting barrier. I know sometimes when we think river, we think of like a lazy river, kind of like at the water park. I love those things. You get out on the inner tube, you just kind of float around, you don't even do anything, 
and it's just a relaxing experience. That's not what this is here. Um, uh, this is a, uh, something altogether different. Um, ten months out of the year, the Jordan River is safe to cross. Uh, but in the spring, near the end of the rainy season, where the river is at its flood stage, the Jordan becomes deadly. Uh, in addition to the rains, you've got the melting snows of Mount Hermon feeding it. Water could get up to 12 feet deep. It was a mile wide at some points, and, and the current was so strong and violent, one could lose their life in the river, and that's been known to happen throughout the ages. Uh, there are numerous accounts throughout history testifying to this. I won't share all of them with you, but among them include ancient Christian travelogues warning pilgrims about the river, but nevertheless, pilgrims were known to drown there. Uh, it was deadly. Uh, so there's 10 months where you can cross, two months where it's not a good idea. So when do you think God has Israel stand on the banks of the river preparing for a crossing? Look down at verse 15 and look at the end of verse 15 where the author gives us a little parenthetical statement. He did not have to tell us this, but he does. And he does, I think, to increase the sense of drama and to help underscore the impossible situation that Israel finds itself in. Again, the end of verse 15, he says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So, you guessed it, we're in the danger zone. We're in that two-month window where you really don't want to attempt a crossing, especially a mass crossing. We've got over a million people, men, women, children, babies, Old people, weak people, sick people, lots of equipment, weapons, animals, gear, plunder that they took from Egypt. Uh, crossing this river, folks, had all the makings of a disaster. This could go really bad, really quick. This alone could wipe out most of the people, and Israel would lose even before they got into Canaan. And yet, God has brought them here at the very worst possible time, at the most difficult time, and and, and he intends for them to cross over it without even telling them how. What's more, we learn from verse 2 that God has them camp there for three days with no further instructions. Three days for them to look at this raging, powerful, deadly river. Three days to let the impossibility of the situation sink in. Most of these people would have zero memory of the dramatic Red Sea episode. Many of them would not have even been born at that time. And even those who may have heard the story from their fathers, if they had maybe approached the rivers with hope for a repeat, it's not hard to imagine those hopes waning away as a full day goes by and nothing happens. And another day goes by and still nothing. And a third day passes, and they are still standing there, and the river is still raging, violently cutting its way through everything. It's just them and the river. And the impossibility of the situation, I think, is magnified through this period of waiting. Uh, that's what I think is, is a part of the reason for this delay. Uh, because part of their preparation to enter into the land and experience all the blessings that God had for them was to first, I think, come to the end of themselves, the end of their strength and resources. That's why God brings them here during the most difficult time to cross over. They had to experience their own weakness before they could know God's strength. They had to, they had to come to grips with their own inability 
before they could fully appreciate that God is able and that they must rely solely on Him. This is a pattern we see through the Scriptures. This is nothing unusual. Uh, When that first generation of Israelites was wandering in the wilderness 40 years prior, God did something there that on the surface seemed really strange. He let them go hungry. He put them in an impossible situation. How could all of these people survive in the barren wilderness? It was an insurmountable problem for them. But while the people did need food, there was something else that God knew that they needed even more, and they would not learn what they needed apart from their helplessness. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses recounts Israel's experiences, and he says that God humbled you, and He let you hunger, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They had to unlearn self-reliance and learn how to rely on God. Or think, think of the afflictions of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians, he reflects back on an extremely difficult affliction that God had called him to go through. It was an insurmountable problem. It was so extreme that he nearly died. And when Paul looks back on it, uh, he's not angry with God about it. Instead, he has the spiritual perception to recognize God's good hand in it. And so, he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, why, why, why did God allow that? Because God is mean? Because God is cruel? No. Paul says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, this kind of thing is not unusual in God's dealings with His people. It's how He dealt with your spiritual ancestors. It's how He deals with you. He he has called many of you in this room to do something, to go through something, to walk a certain path, to face a situation or circumstance that you have never faced before, and it seems impossible. And sometimes He leaves you there on the banks of the Jordan. For three days, for three months, for three years, and you have no idea how you're going to successfully navigate what He has called you to do. You have not passed this way before, as Joshua tells the people. He's not given you all the answers yet. He's put a veil over the future. It could be all kinds of things. It could be a sudden job change or job loss or the death of a loved one. Could be a scary medical diagnosis where you discover that God has called you to a season of physical weakness and suffering. And we face these things with fear and doubts and uncertainty, and we would rather go down a different path, and yet God tells you, guess what? This is the way. This is the path that you must walk through and cross over to enter into my blessing and into deeper fellowship with me, because God wants to wean you off of self-reliance, because self-reliance is spiritually suicidal. God says this in Jeremiah 17, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, he shall not see any good come. When we are healthy, when we are wealthy, when we're strong, 
when we feel like we have all the answers and can deal with any problem that comes our way, when we can make things happen in our lives through our own cleverness, we become vulnerable to the dangerous sin of self-reliance. And self-reliance, Jeremiah says, turns our hearts away from God. And that, my friends, uh, is the most dangerous place to be when your heart is turned away from Him. Uh, Of course, a lifetime of self-reliance is eternal spiritual suicide because you can never experience the Lord's blessing and salvation apart from first acknowledging your own helplessness. And so Israel stands by the overflowing banks of the Jordan, utterly helpless, and the the question is, okay, now what? Uh, That was the question for them in that moment. That's the question for us. How do we get the courage and how do we receive grace and strength to go forward into this thing that God has called us to do? Which leads to my second observation about the text where we see an appropriate response, trust, and obedience. So God hasn't revealed all the answers to Israel at this point, but they are faithfully obedient to do what God has revealed. Sometimes when we're going through a situation that is difficult, we want all the answers, don't don't you? I know I do. Uh, What am I supposed to do if this happens instead of that? Uh, How should I respond if I'm obedient to God here, but, but then this other hard thing happens as a result of my obedience, and then what am I supposed to do when that happens? And so we try to forecast every possible scenario and every possible outcome and have everything mapped out and planned, and that's not how the Christian life works. Alexander McLaren said that God opens often His hand one finger at a time. That's what's happening here with Israel. And the point is is that it is sufficient for us to simply see the next step and then trust God for the things that we cannot see. When I'm counseling people, I often describe it as doing the next right thing. Because often people aren't interested in the next step as they are in the next 20 steps. And the reason why is because we want to be self-reliant. We want to feel like we're in control. Uh, But I have no idea what steps 16, 17, and 18 are supposed to be. But guess what? You and I are not responsible for what we do not know. We're responsible to be obedient to what God has revealed and to do that thing. If God hasn't revealed it, you don't need to worry about it. This is part of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Israel had to have faith to go to the Jordan River and by faith had to camp there and not just quit and leave in frustration when they looked at the river and had no idea what the next step was. And so we likewise are to live in this way when faced with an insurmountable obstacle and a difficult path forward. We're to, we're to live according to the exhortation of the prophet Isaiah, who, who said in chapter 50, verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. After three long days, Joshua finally turns to the people in verse 5, It says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The people are commanded to make themselves holy. And this consecration would have involved the washing of their clothes and and abstaining from sexual relations with their spouses. Why? 
because the washing of the clothes was an outward symbol of a heart seeking to be clean and pure and obedient to God. And the temporary abstaining of relations was a way of demonstrating that even the most important and intimate of relationships came second place to God. These actions of of consecration were a means to help Israel to get their minds right, to get their focus right. Before they could see and receive the encouragement of God working wonders in their midst, they and their hearts had to pursue holiness and a right attitude before God. Not that God couldn't do the miracle apart from their consecration. God isn't dependent on them for anything. The consecration isn't for God's benefit, it's for theirs. Because it's possible to see the wonders of God and yet not really see it. Jesus did signs and wonders all the time. He did all kinds of amazing things. But, but, but because the hearts of so many were blinded by their own sin, they were unable to truly benefit from the miracles and perceive the spiritual meaning and message in them. And there's something about consecration, about the pursuit of holiness, that sharpens our spiritual focus so that we can better perceive and understand how God is moving in our situation. That's very important because often when God has called us to face an insurmountable problem and walk a very difficult path, we become very desperate to see God work in our situation, don't we? Uh, We become desperate to see Him move. And how can you see God move? Well, just as Israel first had to prepare to see God move through their consecration, uh, through really seeking to get their hearts and heads in the right place before God, we must do the same. A consecration for you doesn't mean a ritualistic washing of your clothes, but he is calling you to cultivate a heart of purity. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in hearts, for they will see God. Uh, The author of Hebrews said, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and look to Jesus. He said that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And God is calling you to put everything important in your life underneath your allegiance to God. And to the degree that your heart is chasing after the Lord in pure obedience, putting Him first above all things, is the degree that you will see God move in obviously powerful ways in your life. It's a very important principle. Because often when we're at the banks of the Jordan, facing an impossible situation, we become bitter and frustrated and impatient. And that's sin, by the way. That's disobedience. And that, brothers and sisters, is going to totally blind you from the, from the movement of God in your situation. It's going to keep you from the encouragement of seeing and discerning His activity in your life, both in the big things and in the everyday things, because in truth, God is always moving in your life. And as John Calvin, commenting on Joshua 3, said, faith prepares us to perceive the operation of God. Dale Davis writes that God's people must be rightly prepared for God's show, quote-unquote, if they're going to appreciate it, if they're going to be fortified in faith. And although God may not now cut a path through rivers for His people every month or so, the principle remains. Do you prepare yourself for the practice of the public worship of God? Here he's talking about when you come here, when you come to church? Do you prepare to see God move on Sunday morning? Davis goes on to write, if we are not impressed with the grandeur of living, of the living God in public worship, uh, 
Is it because we have not prepared ourselves to see him as such? Could it be that we even fail to detect the Lord's marvelous working in the routine affairs of our lives simply because we have not prepared ourselves to see or even expect that? In other words, maybe your boredom in church has nothing to do with whether or not the music is to your liking or whether Deemer Webb is exciting from the pulpit. Lord knows I am not, and so do you. Could it, could it be sometimes that your lack of seeing God's activity be attributed not to a dead, cold church, but to a dead, cold heart inside of you? Because you, you've not prepared yourself to see God move through, through pursuing holiness and purity and a right heart and a right attitude, and therefore you're blind to what He's doing. Well, after we have prepared ourselves to see God, we then, of course, must look for Him and look to Him. And we see this illustrated in our text. Look at verse 2. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. What's the ark of the covenant? The first time I ever heard of the ark was in 1981. I was 10 years old, I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and I saw the Ark as this scary golden magical box, and when you open it up, it melted the face off of your enemies. Now, you don't want to build a theology of the Ark off of Indiana Jones. The box isn't magic. You can't use it like a weapon. But the movie was right in associating the Ark with God's presence. However, ridiculously, it was portrayed in the movie with those awful 1980 special effects. Now, the ark is not where God lives. God can't be contained in a box. Instead, the ark is a physical symbol of God's presence with His people, and it's a reminder of God's covenant with His people, uh, that God would protect them and provide for them and fulfill all of His promises to them, even when it seemed impossible. And after Israel has waited for three days, and after the impossibility of the situation has set in and it's clear to all that they're helpless, and after a time of consecration and heart preparation, they are now ready to really appreciate that they must rely on God alone. And so the priests now are to take the ark, hoist it high, and march it ahead of the people of God. And the message here is obvious. If Israel is to do this hard thing that God has called them to do, if they are to successfully navigate this impossible situation and experience the blessing that God has promised through it, then God must go before them and God must make a way. Look at verse 4. He says, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. That's about two-thirds of a mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So if everyone crowds around the ark, hardly anyone's going to see it. But the distance allows the people to see it. That's the point. They haven't passed this way before. They don't know exactly where to go. And so God wants everyone's eyes to be fixed on that ark so that they can go the right way. That ark 
which contained two tablets of stone on which were written God's Ten Commandments. It was the very Word of God. And those stone tablets in that golden box was a way of saying God's presence is mediated through His Word. Previous generation and their wilderness wanderings had to follow a pillar of fire to blaze the trail for them, to show them where they were to go, where they would walk. But that age is past. And as the ark is held up, it, is, it was as if to say, your forefathers followed the fire and the cloud, but now you follow God on the basis of His Word and His covenant promises. And that is what gives you direction. That is what you're to build your life on. That's what's going to give you strength and courage, God's words and God's promises. But very often I fear that many churches today would rather have a pillar of fire blazing on the stage with incredible signs and wonders. They'd rather have that than have the perfect and precious Word of God, God's very revelation, God's incredible and amazing promises. They'd rather have that, the, 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 the audio-visual pyrotechnic display They'd rather have that than God's Word lifted high and preached and proclaimed from the pulpit. And so they go to this conference, or they go to that meeting, or they go to this conference or in concert, chasing after the sensational, while the very Word of God collects dust on their shelves. God's not against signs and wonders. He's about to do one in this chapter. He is the God of wonders. But that previous generation of Israelites had miracles and signs and wonders, but in the end they missed the blessing because they rejected God's Word. They did not regard God's Word as sufficient, and so they could not enjoy His presence, and as a result they could not enter the land. And so now, 40 years later, we see that the key for this new generation to move forward with strength and courage in the face of what God has called them to was to keep the ark in their line of vision, in their, in their, uh, in their sight. And if they're focused on the ark, being reminded of the presence of God and being reminded of the priority of His Word, as they're focused on that, they're not focused on the raging river that threatens to swallow them up. When God is in your field of vision as you prioritize the Word of God by lifting it high in your heart and in your mind when you're consumed with following and obeying Him, being reminded of His covenant promises to you and His presence with you, then you can move forward and face the impossible with strength and with courage. The fulfillment of what the ark pointed to, of course, is found in Christ. Christ doesn't just bring the Word of God. John chapter 1 verse 1 says that He is the Word of God. Uh, The presence of God isn't just with him. He's the physical manifestation of the presence of the invisible God. Indeed, his other name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he is the one who has promised to us, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And it is the promise of his presence that gives us strength to walk the path that God has called us to as we sing to him, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. And we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so we have an insurmountable problem, which is a raging river. We have an appropriate response, which is trust and obedience. And finally, we have a supernatural solution, which is God's salvation. Look at verse 15. 
As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. We go down a few verses. It says, now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, to understand the magnitude of that miracle, it's not just that uh, God separated the waters, but they, they rose up in a heap all the way to the city of Adam. So check out this map. You know where Adam is? Way up there. That's about almost 20 miles north of where they were. God came and he literally just shoved all the water back to Adam. Can you imagine living in the city of Adam that day? Seeing the raging river running backwards towards you and piling up higher and higher in a wall. Uh, the Red Sea miracle gets a lot of press, and, and rightfully so, but folks, this is equally stunning. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Look at verse 10. Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. You may want to circle or underline that phrase in your Bible, the living God. These descriptions about God in this chapter are very important. Uh, While Joshua is a book about military warfare, it's also a book about spiritual warfare. Uh, God here is described as the living God. It's meant to contrast him with the dead, weak, false gods of Canaan. Again, uh, this event is, is full circle from 40 years prior when God delivered Israel from Egypt. And when God struck down Egypt, it wasn't just a strike against Pharaoh and his military, but a strike against the gods of Egypt. How do I know that? God tells me. Exodus 12, he says, on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, in one sense, the gods of Egypt are fiction, vain figments of people's imaginations. But the scriptures also tell us that behind these fake gods were real, evil, supernatural powers. Uh, Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy 32 that when one sacrifices to the gods, they're actually sacrificing to demons that are not gods. And so, in the Exodus, God is crushing the wicked, invisible, demonic powers and principalities that seek to destroy the people of God. And the climax of that crushing is the parting of the Red Sea to deliver His people. And now, 40 years later, on their way into Canaan, God continues His conquest against the powers and principalities. And the very first shot against the Canaanites is not against the human enemies, but against the spiritual ones. The main god of the Canaanites is named Baal. He was the sky god, so he was called Lord of Heaven. He was a storm god, and the Canaanites would have credited the rains that flooded the Jordan, the Jordan that shielded Jericho from the Israelites, they would have credited that rain to Baal. 
And Baal was seen as the one who had dominion over the waters because in the pagan mythologies, he defeated the river and sea god. So he had mastery over the waters. In the wake of his victory, Baal was called Lord of all the earth. But look at what Joshua says in verse 11. He says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And then go down to verse 13, where it again says, The Lord of all the earth. You can underline or circle that too. Or flip back a page to chapter 2, to Rahab's confession. We looked at this last week. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what Rahab says. The Lord your God, Yahweh, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What's the point? I can't state the point any better than what the psalmist said in Psalm 96. For great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And here the one true God demonstrates himself not to be a mere territorial deity. He goes into the waters, into what is supposed to be the domain of Baal, under the control of Baal, and with an arm easily shoves billions of gallons of water 20 miles upriver so that his people can safely pass through. And this miracle serves as a warning shot across the bow, not just for the rebellious Canaanites, but for the satanic powers that are opposing the plans and purposes and people of God. Canaan is Yahweh's, has always been Yahweh's, and he comes to claim it for his people. Throughout the ancient world, the churning waters were seen as signs of chaos and out-of-control evil. And in this miracle, Israel sees in living color what Job said about God in Job 9.9 when he speaks of God as the one who trampled the waves of the sea. And the message here is that the things in this world that seem chaotic and out of control, the circumstances of life that threaten to overwhelm you and drown you and pull you under, the thing that you're going through right now that seems impossible and you don't know if you can make it through, that thing actually is not out of control. God rules and reigns over that thing and he will not allow that thing to defeat his good purposes for you. This is the wonderful encouragement we find in Psalm 138. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. This is the one hope for God's people both then and now who are standing at the raging banks of the Jordan. Notice in verse 10, Joshua says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. So the idea here is that this act of God wasn't just pragmatics. It wasn't just a means to get the people to the other side. He says, this is how you shall know that that God is with you and that that he will without fail drive out your enemies. This miracle would serve as something God's people could look back on as they moved into the land and continued to fulfill God's calling in their lives. If God is greater than Baal, greater than the satanic powers, if he can take a river that threatened to sweep them away and casually shove it aside 20 miles north without breaking a sweat, 
If he can bring about such a great salvation, then giving them everything else they need for moving forward, including victory over the Canaanites, is a piece of cake. It's less than nothing for him. They should consider it done. And the New Testament uses the exact same kind of logic in regards to our own deliverance. You and I are on the receiving end of an even greater miracle of God. Because of your sin and my sin, there was an insurmountable barrier between us and God. And if undealt with, that barrier would sweep us away into death and hell, the punishment we deserve for our sins. But in the midst of our helpless situation, at the end of our strength and our resources, when we could do nothing to cross the barrier and get to God, God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, whose name has the exact same meaning as Joshua's, the Lord is my salvation, and Jesus would come and do away with that barrier as he experienced death and hell in our place on the cross, but was gloriously raised from the dead three days later. And in his victory over sin and death and the satanic powers that held us captive, he removed the barrier between God and man so that whosoever would by faith look to and follow after the resurrected Jesus, just as those Israelites looked to and followed the ark, such a person would be able to cross over from death to life and enter into the experience of the blessings of God starting now and the fullness of God's joy in heaven later. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 uses Joshua 3 logic, that if God did not hold back His own Son, Jesus Christ, for us, but gave Him up to die on a cross to secure for us a great salvation, then as we face each and every trial of life, as we face circumstances that seem insurmountable and impossible, we should look backwards to God's great deliverance of us through Jesus Christ. And in looking back, be assured that God will grant us everything else we need for everything else He's called us to do between here and heaven. He will give us strength and grace and resources, all of those things that we need to move forward, to glorify and live for Him even in the darkest and bleakest of circumstances. His grace is sufficient for you. He is your salvation. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, drowning in a sea of guilt and shame over your sin, you feel like there's no hope for somebody like you, the application is exactly the same. There is hope. Look to Him. Look to the God of wonders. Look to Christ. Believe on Him and know His salvation. Let's pray.